Hi, friends. There's a tale of a monastery in the mountains of Europe that had fallen on hard times. They were down to a half dozen monks and the abbot. The stress of these hard times resulted in the monks complaining about each other and only thinking of themselves. The abbot was sad that they could not attract any new young men to join their order. In the same region, there was a rabbi who had retired to a cottage near the monastery. Old friends from seminary, the abbot decided to seek advice and counsel from the rabbi. The rabbi had no suggestions for how to grow the monastery, but simply closed their conversation with this. One thing I will say, the Messiah is among you. Well, in the days, weeks, and months that followed, the old monks pondered this and wondered whether there's any possible significance in the rabbi's words. The Messiah is among us? Could he possibly have meant one of the monks here at the monastery? And if that's the case, which one? As they contemplated this thought, the monks began to notice the positive qualities about their colleagues, which led them to treat one another with extraordinary respect on the off chance that indeed the Messiah was among them. Well, when spring came and the townspeople began to climb the mountain to picnic near the monastery, they began to notice a difference in the atmosphere. There was a, a winsome quality about the way the monks treated one another and how they welcomed those who came to visit. Soon the crowds grew and young men began to inquire about joining the order. This brought even more life and energy to the old monastery, and it gradually became a thriving witness to the love and grace of God, resulting in a positive impact on the surrounding towns and villages. The rabbi had been correct. The Messiah was among them. Jesus said, By this the world will know you are my disciples, if you love one another. About 30 years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension back to heaven, as the church was growing by the power of the Holy Spirit, a young man named Saul, who was very religious, who called himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, had an encounter with the living Christ while he was traveling on the road to Damascus. His life was forever transformed as he accepted the truth about who Jesus is and followed his call to become a missionary to the Gentile world, establishing and strengthening the young churches. He even changed his name to the Greek version of Saul, Paul. So today, as we continue in our series about the risk of a with others life, we're going to take a look at one of the letters of encouragement Paul wrote to a church in the city of Philippi. Paul was in prison awaiting trial and was intent on communicating to the Christians in Philippi the importance of shifting from a self-centered life to an others-centered life. One commentator pointed out that instead of just giving superficial advice to get over their differences with one another, Paul points them first and foremost to remember what it is they have received from their acceptance of the gospel and their faith in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Paul holds up a high vision of the why. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete 
by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Notice there are four points to Paul's appeal to the Philippians. See if you can answer yes to any of these. If you have encouragement from being united with Christ. I experience encouragement every other Wednesday evening when my life group meets. As fellow believers in Christ, we listen to, learn from, and encourage one another in our conversations together and our prayers for one another, not to mention the group texts that go out at random times for prayer or celebration. So when have you been encouraged from being united in Christ with other followers of Jesus? Second, if you have any comfort from his love. Well, there have been multiple times in my life when I've received comfort from the love of God. Perhaps most poignantly, when my dad in 1997 and my mom in 2004 went home to be with the Lord. When have you felt comfort from God's love? Third, if you have a common sharing in the Spirit. Well, friends, practically every Sunday, whether here in Lexington in the classic or contemporary services or in Wilmington, Foxborough, Watertown, or East Lex, I experience the sharing of the Spirit when we lift our voices together in worship, led by an extremely talented and Spirit-filled team of worship leaders and musicians. How would you describe a time of common sharing in the Spirit? And then fourth, Paul appeals to them, if you have experienced any tenderness and compassion. I've experienced the tenderness and compassion of God's people everywhere I have lived and served. Now, no place has been perfect, but in every place I have made dear friends, brothers and sisters in Christ with whom I have shared moments of tenderness and compassion. So how, how about you? I'm assuming Paul knows firsthand the people of Philippi have also experienced all four of these realities in their community of sisters and brothers in the faith. You may remember that it was Paul who brought the good news of Jesus to the Philippians first when he and his companions answered the call in Paul's dream of a man of Macedonia asking for them to come over and help them. Upon arriving, they found Lydia, a businesswoman and believer in God, among other women outside the city, who responded to the gospel, were baptized, and founded the Philippian church. So Paul has a history with these people. Now, after holding up these four realities, Paul goes on to propose four ways those realities can impact their communal life with one another. So first, be like-minded with one another. Paul's not suggesting here that they are to be in total agreement about everything, that would be impossible. He's not talking about uniformity of thought, but rather in their differences, work together and serve one another and have the attitude of Jesus, the one who washed the feet of the disciples, who healed the sick, ate with sinners, taught disciples and Pharisees alike, confronted injustice and commanded them to love one another. Second, have the same love. The word for love that Paul uses here is one he uses often in his letters to the churches, agape. It is a love that is unconditional, sacrificial, and desires the best for the one who is loved above one's own needs. It was a distinctive characteristic of the early church. 
Third, be one in spirit. This word described a spirit of harmony that unites people together. Literally, it could be translated one in soul. It reminds me of the time I was in Ethiopia with World Vision and had the privilege to preach in the church of our partner community of Kachabira. I was preaching from Ephesians 4, where Paul writes, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In those moments, my interpreter, Kukura, a local World Vision staff member, was right on pace with me as I preached. And when we sat down, he whispered to me, it felt like we were joined at the heart. We were in one spirit. And lastly, be of one mind. Now, this is very similar to being like-minded. In fact, it is the same root word. But in the first instance, it's a form that suggests a continual or habitual action of being like-minded with one another. And here, it is more direct to have a unity of mind and love that will make Paul's joy complete. But how do we do this? Well, verses 3 and 4 are the focal point of how to live this with others' life. So let's return to the text. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Selfish ambition can be the downfall of a church. It eats away at harmony and fellowship when people insist on their own way of doing things. Some years ago, I heard of a church that was in a critical moment in its life. They had called a young, enthusiastic senior pastor who saw great potential and future for this historic downtown church. But in many ways, the members dug in their heels, resisted his ideas, refused to change, and hung on to their own selfish ambitions of how they thought their church should look and act. Within three years, this young pastor left and went to serve another church. My fear was that this church would become a beautiful, well-preserved museum for the downtown community, where organizations would come and hold their luncheons and banquets, but there would be no faith parents to nurture the children and youth, no missional life flowing out the doors into the community and around the world, and that the hallways would be stilled without sounds of the laughter of children, lively conversations with teens and adults, whispered prayers of healing in the chapel. Well, thanks be to God, my fears were not realized. Now, when I returned to New England eight years ago, I was struck by how many once vital and life-giving churches were barely hanging on, closed, or even turned into condos. And so I was so excited to come and be a part of the ministry here at Grace Chapel, a community of faith that was still vibrantly holding up the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ in a darkening Northeast. And I am even more excited today for this season in our life together. Friends, we have weathered a storm the likes of which we could never have anticipated. But God has been faithful. Our digital ministry grew by leaps and bounds through the pandemic and is now a new front door where people are finding us and discovering life with God. 
Visitors are coming every week to one or more of our campuses. Our children's ministry is growing again, opening up more opportunities for people to explore serving in Kidstown. Our student ministry team has taken close to 200 middle and high schoolers away on retreat this very weekend, squeezing in as many as possible off the waiting list. Our worship leaders are some of the most collaborative and mutually affirming leaders of worship I have ever had the joy to serve with. The music they bring us week in and week out is inspiring, and the investment of our many volunteer musicians is second to none, in my opinion. We are now regularly receiving new members, and men, women, and young people are continuing to inquire about baptism. These are all signs of new life and evidence that the Holy Spirit is at work in our midst, for which I give all praise to God. But all of that could change if we give in to our own individual selfish ambitions of how we think our church should be. Gordon Fee was a professor of New Testament when I was at Gordon-Conwell. In his commentary on Philippians, he writes this, The expressions of human fallenness that altogether militate against unity within the household of faith are selfish ambition and vain conceit. God's people must learn to live as Christ, caring for the needs of others as a first priority. He calls selfish ambition and vain conceit a mindset that is the exact opposite of Christ's. He says they militate against unity within the household of faith. But there is something we can do to combat that from happening here. And the antidote is humility. Paul tells us to value others in humility. Humility is a word our society might equate with weakness. And it certainly had that meaning in the ancient world. Throughout the Greco-Roman era, humility was seen as a shortcoming, not a virtue, until Jesus. The biblical understanding of humility is a right attitude toward self and God. A person who is humble does not think too highly nor too lowly of her or himself. Paul is encouraging us to look realistically at ourselves, not puffed up, not put down, but to come from a healthy self-awareness and then to elevate others up, to serve and not just serve, but outdo one another in serving, to look not only to our own interests, but to look, to value, to honor the interests of others. Essentially, to move from a self-centered life to an others-centered life. Paul says we must have the same mindset as Jesus when it comes to our relationships with one another. And I'm not going to lie, that is a tall order. Continue with me as we look at verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, fully God, 
refuses to use that which he had to his own advantage. He put aside all status and privileges that went along with being of the very same nature as God. He laid those aside. It's the same verb used when Jesus gets up to wash the disciples' feet and lays aside his outer robe. He did not consider his high position as something he could not give up. Think about whatever status you currently enjoy personally, in your community, in your workplace, in your social groups, in the church. Is that a status you would easily and willingly give up? Jesus did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped or held onto selfishly. Now, as we were chatting about this message, Pastor Brian mentioned a book to me called The Selfish Gene by Richard Dawkins. Now, true confessions, I did not have time to read the book, but the gist is that Dawkins says that human beings are created with a selfish gene, and as such, we are not naturally predisposed to think of others over ourselves. Dawkins writes this, be warned that if you wish, as I do, to build a society in which individuals cooperate generously and unselfishly toward a common good, you can expect little help from biological nature. Let us try to teach generosity and altruism. Now, he defines altruism as to increase another's welfare at the expense of one's own. Because we are born selfish. Let us understand what our own selfish genes are up to, because we may then at least have the chance to upset their designs, something that no other species has ever aspired to do. Now, at the risk of oversimplifying, he is right. We are not predisposed to think of others first. But I do not know if it is a selfish gene or whether it's just plain sin. The evil one whispered a lie into the ear of the woman in the garden. Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The seed of doubt was sown. The temptation to take what she saw was pleasing to the eye and overrode her desire to obey God. She believed the lie, and the rest is history. But even then, God had a plan. Jesus, fully God, laid aside his glory. He submitted himself to the humiliation and limitations of becoming a tiny human, a helpless baby, dependent upon others. When he got tired, he rested. When he got stressed from the many demands placed on him, he went off alone to pray. He drew boundaries around his time. He knew when it was time to act and when to walk away. He knew he shouldn't try to fix everything. He prayed for his friends. He prayed for his enemies. He submitted his life to the will of his father. He drank the cup. And there was no other way for you or for me to be reconciled to our Heavenly Father except Jesus finishing what he started. And thanks be to God, the cross was not the end of the journey. For he rose from the grave and ascended back into heaven, restored to glory at the right hand of the Father. But the journey had left its marks. He bears the scars of the price he paid to secure our salvation. Scars that speak of the selfish things we have done, the hurtful words we have said, unkind emails we have sent, 
scars that also speak of works of kindness we never got around to doing, words of support and witness we were afraid to speak, differences with others we've allowed to go unresolved. Moving from a self-centered life to an other-centered life is not easy. And it involves four key attitudes on our part. They begin with these four words. When we enter into a relationship with someone, we need to take a risk. When we take a risk, it involves making a commitment. When we take a risk and make a commitment to someone else, it kind of makes us vulnerable. And if we're taking a risk and making a commitment and becoming vulnerable, that must mean that we are trusting in some way. But notice that these can all flow in and out of one another. If we take that risk, we make the commitment, we make a commitment, it means we've allowed ourselves to become vulnerable. If we're allowing ourselves to become vulnerable, it means we are trusting. And when we trust another, we're taking a risk. And when we're taking a risk, it's because we're trusting someone. When we're trusting, we become vulnerable. When we become vulnerable, we're making a commitment. And when we make a commitment, we're taking a risk. And likewise, we take that risk, we become vulnerable. When we are vulnerable, we are taking a risk. When we trust, we make a commitment. When we make a commitment, it's because we trust. This is how we move from a self-centered life to an other-centered life. Notice that the cross is right at the very center. So when Jesus is at the center of our lives, we are able to shift from that self-centered life to an other-centered life. Our joy will not be complete until we accept what he has done on our behalf, right here in the center of relationships. When we accept what he's done with humble and contrite hearts, when we cross the aisles and seek forgiveness from those we have hurt, when we offer forgiveness to those who have offended us, when we truly begin to serve one another as Jesus has served us, moving from a self-centered life to an other-centered life involves risk, commitment, vulnerability, and trust. And Jesus modeled that for us. He took a huge risk. He set aside his rights, the glory of heaven, and he came to earth in the most vulnerable state possible, a tiny infant. He trusted the plan the Father had put into place. And at his baptism, he made a commitment to fulfill that plan as he walked into the water to John the Baptist, humbly submitting himself to the will of the Father. He rose from the water and began the three-year journey that would culminate in his death on the cross. But again, the cross was not the end of the journey. God raised him from the grave on Easter morning, victorious over sin and death. Join me back in the text, starting at verse 9. 
Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, everyone, willingly or not, will bend the knee and bow before the King of Kings. One day, everyone will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And our joy will be complete when we stand in his presence and bow before him, when we bend our knee in honor of the Lamb who sits upon the throne, when we confess that he is Lord. But until that day comes, we are called to look to the interests of others above our own. One of the first steps in accepting that call is in baptism, just as it was Jesus' first step before his public ministry. In humility, we repent of our sin and acknowledge our need for a Savior. We accept Jesus' work for us upon the cross and confess our desire to be his disciple all the rest of our days. We identify with his death and resurrection as we descend into the water and are raised to new life in Christ. Today in Lexington and in a couple of weeks, Wilmington and Foxborough, people will be taking that first step. Now, after a baptism, I like to give each person a small hand towel. I tell them they have now been commissioned into the order of the towel. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. He laid aside his robe and he clothed himself with a towel and he washed the feet of his disciples. So too, we are called to clothe ourselves with humility and to serve as Jesus served. In 1 Peter chapter 5, we read this. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Now, there's a simple song I learned as a teenager before contemporary Christian music was a thing. I'd like to teach it to you and close by singing it. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord. And he shall lift you up higher and higher and he shall lift you up. To God be the glory. Amen. Let's pray together. God, it does seem we are naturally disposed to think of ourselves more than we think of others. But Lord Jesus, you have modeled for us the example of putting aside all of your rights and privileges coming here to be one of us and to show us how to put others first. So I pray that each of us who has chosen to follow you would indeed follow you through the waters of baptism into service in the order of the towel, that we might indeed shift from being self-centered, to being other-centered. To the glory of your name, to the growth of your kingdom, we pray this 
in your strong name, our Lord, our Master, our Rabbi. Amen.